So the developer experience you get is you get to write a function or a method, depending on the language uh, you're writing in. And you can write this function as if failure isn't even a possibility. So the function code is failure oblivious. And then Temporal will execute that function code as if failure on an, on an application level does not even exist. So again, the Temporal workflow also mitigates adverse effects on a platform level and making it entirely invisible on an application level. The UiPath 2022.4 release brings automation for all. Learn new skills and focus on critical thinking for value-added work. Welcome robots on Mac, semantic automation through Clipboard AI, and a new attended framework. You can get started for free with UiPath Automation Cloud at account.uipath.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am your host, Ben Popper, joined, as I often am, by my wonderful colleagues and collaborators, Ryan Donovan and Cassidy Williams. How's it going, y'all? Oh, pretty good. How you doing? Yeah, pretty good. So we have some folks joining us today from Temporal. We've also had some colleagues of theirs, I believe, work for us on the blog in the past. Ryan, I sent this email around. You said it seemed like interesting technology. What piqued your curiosity here? You know, I, I always like systems, and this is seems like it's a really interesting service backend. It's a little deep in the back end to where I'm not sure I understand it completely, but I'm excited to hear more. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's get into the weeds then. I'd like to bring on our guests, Maxime and Dominic. Hello to you both. Hello. Thanks a lot for having us. Hi. So Maxime, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into the world of software and some of what you did that brought you to working at the company you do now? My journey started probably when I was in my high school back in Russia. And uh, we didn't have like home computers back then at home, but uh, my school was uh, like advanced uh, physics and mathematics school. We did practice in one of the research facilities. We have this uh, IBM 360 mainframe clone by Soviets. And, uh, but they had just, uh, they used the IBM 360 operating system. So that was my first experience programming. And after that, I went to Moscow State University in physics department. So did uh, nonlinear optics. And then I ended up in Brazil in uh, 95, studied there actually computer science. So my computer science uh, degrees from Brazil, Rio de Janeiro. And uh, then I came to the US and uh, worked for a startup and uh, ended up in Amazon in 2002 and worked for Amazon for eight and a half years and witnessed Amazon kind of grow from uh, practically monolith, uh, having a single monolithic application, which you could, you could compile the whole website and backend of Amazon on your desktop back then. <laughs> and then uh, kind of saw how it became uh, like kind of broken into multiple and thousands of microservices. That was uh, quite a journey. And my team was, uh, I, I kind of ended up in infrastructure and well before AWS existed. And I was tech lead for the kind of pops up part of the ecosystem. So I was tech lead for the distributed storage for the pops up. And later it was adopted by the AWS Simple Queue service. And then later we realized that queues and uh, kind of are not the right abstraction to link services together and uh, build uh, these kind of complex backend systems. And we started a, a Amazon uh, simple workflow service as a part of the AWS later 
and I was tech lead for the public release of AWS SQL workflow. And then uh, I ended up um, kind of leaving Amazon and uh, joining Google. I worked for years from Google and then later joined Uber because Uber opened an office in Seattle. And at Uber, uh, I worked on this uh, technology which we are talking today about. Dominic, let's do a quick flyover for you and then maybe I'll leave some room for Ryan and Cassidy to ask some questions based on, yeah, the wealth of experience you've had. So I grew up in uh, Germany and uh, my journey also started in my teens. My dad is a a nuclear physicist and had uh, access to computers early on. So then I started dabbling in Pascal Basic, eventually Visual Basic. Then that motivated me to study software engineering. I joined the Hasso Plattner Institute in Potsdam, Brandenburg, Germany, and Hasso Plattner, founder of SAP. So then I joined SAP and shortly after I relocated from SAP Germany to uh, SAP in Palo Alto, California, here in the United States. And I was with SAP for about uh, 10 years. And you could argue I, I basically professionally grew up together with SAP in the cloud. Uh, I never touched SAP's core system, so, so I know nothing about R3 or ABAP. And then after about 10 years SAP, I joined Cisco for two years. When I joined Cisco, I didn't know anything about networks. And when I left Cisco, I still don't know anything about networks. So <laughs> it's like, if anybody has some enlightening blog uh, podcast about that, I'm all ears. Yeah, I imagine myself to uh, stay with Cisco uh, many years to come. But then I came across uh, Temporal and was just absolutely fascinated by the technology. Temporal reached out to me. So it's like, okay, that's fate. And yeah, after that, we uh, getting to know each other. Then I joined Temporal. Dang, you both have worked at such large, big places. So it makes sense that you have a lot of ideas of architecture and how it probably should be done. Yeah, we um, had a post talking about some of your technology. One of our writers joined uh, your team, this guy, Ryland Goldstein, and he wrote this post, The Macro Problem with Microservices. So can you start talking about what are the issues you run into when you start having a big microservices uh, architecture? I think the main uh, kind of problem with microservices is that while they solve a set of problems uh, associated with monolithic applications, they introduce a different set of problems. A lot of effort uh, was put last 20 years in uh, fixing the, uh, some of those problems, mostly around deployments and operations. So that's why we've got virtual machines, we've got Docker, we've got Kubernetes. But they didn't solve the core problem is that uh, now you don't have a single database behind the application. And every service has its kind of owns its own data and there is no transactionality between them. And you kind of need to stitch together all these little pieces and every application becomes kind of like this uh, constructor, right? You need to kind of take all these pieces and uh, put them together. And developers actually have worse experience right now as microservices because they need to deal with all this complexity. And that is exactly where Temporal comes in is that we kind of, like there is other parties, like developer right now became practically distributed systems developer. These are very different skill set and it's not trivial skill set and it's complicated. And they practically need to deal with all this complexity with distributed systems. And Temporal eliminates a huge part of that complexity. It is kind of allows you to focus on your business logic. You write your code, like it's product for developers. They write code. We just make your code fault tolerant and kind of robust and take care of a lot of failure scenarios, which you would need to deal otherwise manually. That is kind of the main value proposition. I remember um, my one experience working with a, a microservices architecture. There were so many ways that 
things could fail because all these services were talking to each other, changing states of, you know, a single transaction going through the system. And kind of a lot of uh, tooling grew up around that to just find out what happened in some failure states. So how does Temporal actually reduce that hassle of, of failures and finding failure states? So I like to draw from the analogy of database systems. Now, if you look at a database system for the last, let's say, 45 years, database developers, they were able to enjoy a fantastic developer experience right? because a database developer can literally write code as if failure doesn't even exist. And so, for example, adverse effects like crash failures or concurrent access are entirely shielded from the developer. So the database systems do that by exposing a core abstraction, right? It's a core abstraction of database transactions. And then what is a database transaction? Well, a database transaction is a sequence of steps, right? And the step is either a read or a write. But it's not just any sequence of steps. It's a, what we call failure oblivious or failure agnostic sequence of steps. And it is a failure oblivious on two different dimensions. It is failure oblivious in its definition, that is in the code. For example, SQL statements, they don't talk about failure, right? You do not see special handling instructions for crash failure or concurrent access. And they are also failure oblivious in their execution, right? So a database transaction either executes observably equivalent to exactly once or observably equivalent to not at all. So every adverse effect is handled on a platform level. It is entirely invisible on an application level. And with temporal, you can argue that a temporal workflow is to distributed systems what a transaction is to a database. So it mitigates adverse effects on a platform level, making it entirely invisible on an application level. And similar to a database transaction, a temporal workflow is a sequence of steps. And also that sequence of steps is failure oblivious or failure agnostic. So the developer experience you get is you get to write a function or a method, depending on the language uh, you're writing in. And you can write this function as if failure isn't even a possibility. So the function code is failure oblivious. And then Temporal will execute that function code as if failure on an, on an application level does not even exist. So again, the Temporal workflow also mitigates adverse effects on a platform level and making it entirely invisible on an application level. Just to make it a little bit more concrete, you just can write code, which is something like sleep 30 days, send email and in the loop. And then you get practically subscription workflow. Because uh, this code uh, cannot fail, uh, and we take care of that uh, code executing in presence of all failure scenarios, you can absolutely, uh, and it's not linked to a specific process, you can call, do things like sleep and all your state, including local variables, stack trace, and everything is preserved. Imagine doing that without such a system, right? Like you can have it in a loop, right? Like just write in Java for whatever loop or while, uh, whatever, and uh, sleep 30 days, send email. And send email also can have associated retry policy and everything. So it means that if the stream system is down for 10 hours, it still will execute that function and the actual code will be blocked for 10 hours on that call. 
So that is kind of, you would kind of see it as a concrete example. And uh, you can have millions of those because you can have hundreds of millions of customers. So you can have millions of those running in parallel executing these functions. I want to dive a little bit into some of the experiences at big versus small companies. But Cassie, do you have any questions or things you want to opine on the sort of technical side of that? I think it's a very interesting way to, it strips out a lot of unnecessary things by by thinking in this model. And I'm more reflecting on that than anything. It's it's an interesting approach. If you don't mind me, add one more. So my, my most crisp mental model of what a temporal workflow is, is a temporal workflow is a function, but with additional execution guarantees. The execution guarantee that your function will execute observably equivalent to exactly once, which is actually equivalent to a function execution where the possibility of failure is just removed. That's my most crisp definition of a temporal workflow. That's so powerful. Like the concept of failure being removed, it feels like something that's impossible, but it's Cool to hear that that level of guarantee kind of blows my mind a little bit. The system's failures are going to happen, but to remove the the sort of effective failure, it almost feels like magic. Our entire job as engineers, right, is to build reliable systems from unreliable components. And that is true for all of engineering, but of course, also for software engineering. However, Temporal actually sits in the middle of that just like databases sit in the middle of that with their transactions. And Temporal composes unreliable components into reliable components so that you can build reliable systems from reliable components, which is much easier, right? If the possibility of failure is removed, many problems become basically trivial to solve. So I just want to understand, in case I missed it, Maxime, if you can, can you talk a little bit about sort of like what the need that was perceived inside of Uber was, the motion that began there in terms of the technology, and then why you decided to step out and sort of spin that out and try to do it independently? So Uber, at least while I was there, uh, it uh, put a lot of uh, thought into the availability because obviously Uber is uh, some, it's, it's pretty <laughs> bad if you cannot just uh, press the button and get the car. Uh, so availability was something which was very, very important. And so Uber engineers put like immense amount of effort into the reliability and availability. But uh, what happened is that as uh, they did it the same way as any other like engineers out there do that, they do it themselves, right? Like practically they have this existing underlying low-level components they have. They have databases, they have queues, they have uh, cron jobs, they have all sort of like, uh, like, I don't know, leader election systems, routers, and so on. So they compose those systems from all these components, and uh, it was a huge uh, exercise. Given the, um, our experience with a simple workflow service at Amazon, we kind of, me and my co-founder Samar, who worked with me on that project as well at Amazon, we uh, kind of realized that uh, this, there is a lot of applicability for that type of system at Uber. And so we built it. And uh, it was a small project, wasn't even funded initially, it was more like a prototype. But then uh, when uh, our management realized the potential of that and we found a couple of internal customers, the project got funded fully we started to get a pretty significant adoption. By the time we left Uber, it was over 100 use cases within three years running on that. And after the left, I think it went even, uh, its adoption is everywhere. Almost every big system at Uber uses that. I think they publicly, for example, said about uh, the payment system from the whole payments and so on. And uh, it's, it was like a bottoms-up 
kind of move, movements. So like, and it's also our company is always like that. It's uh, we are always going bottoms up. Most adoption in the big company comes from a single team or a single developer doing hackathon or just doing POC and finding out that it solves the real problem they have. That's interesting that the adoption is all bottom up. You know, they're the ones experiencing these problems. They're the ones having to engineer around these problems, right? You know, unless it gets really bad, a CTO is not going to see this very often. Actually, it's not 100% true. In a lot of companies, again, it bottoms up because at the end, engineers who are adopting that but uh, we had quite a success uh, talking to CTOs and uh, other technical leaders, if they're technical, right? So in some companies, CTO is not a technical person. But if, if he's a technical person who was an engineer at some point, they almost immediately get the value. After they get the value, they actually, okay, I have like 1,000 problems in my company which this could solve. And they get pretty excited and they usually find uh, fund the POC uh, and then engineers get involved. So we kind of see two adoption paths. One coming from architects and like technical thought leaders in the company, understanding the value of that, and from just application teams solving the actual problem like they have. And so can you talk a little bit about, both of you, what your experience has been like working at a startup? I don't know if that's still how you think about Temporal, but you know, trying to build your own company, something that starts smaller and, and how it's been growing versus some of the very large organizations you worked at, Amazon and Dominic, the same for you. Uh, I don't think we are kind of, every startup in a sense that uh, we certainly have it much easier than most uh, startups out there. I talk to a lot of founders and uh, I find that their, their journey is much harder than average. The reason is that uh, there is this saying, I don't remember who said that, that startups are very, very hard until you find your product, product market fit. And after you find your product market fit, things become easy. And this is the, how you figure out that you've got product market fit, right? Like things just click in place. Temporal was like open source project from the beginning. We started company practically having product market fit already approved because there are a lot of uh, companies using us uh, in production by the time uh, we started the company. So we never had to actually go around and look for that uh, magical product market fit. We already had it. So most of our company uh, existence is just execution. So the most complexity was around building the team, right? Like building the company, actually company building, hiring right people. That was the highest, hardest part. Otherwise, uh, from the product point of view, we had pretty good idea what we are doing, and we are just still executing the original plan. We obviously did a lot of adjustments, but our original plan always was that we want to be an open source company, we have open source projects, we want every engineer to know about it and have it in their toolbox. Obviously, we cannot like ask for anyone to use it all the time, but at least look at that, evaluate that if you have a problem, and then uh, at least know what, what it can provide to you. And experience shows that in most cases, people choose to use it just because it saves them a lot of time and effort. It makes their life much easier in production and operations. So, yeah. And for us, it was mostly journey about building the company. And I'm first time, I was always was an engineer. I never was a manager. My co-founder as well, he always was an engineer, never was a manager. So for us, just like the whole company building process was certainly a very interesting journey. We are approaching 80 people right now and our engineering is extremely strong. I think that that team size is kind of ideal too when you're when you're at that somewhat early stage right right before like really taking off and stuff. It, everyone still kind of knows each other and it's a it's a really it's a really fun time in a startup I think when you're like just under 100 people and you're executing and building a lot of cool stuff. Maxim, I'm uh, curious if as CEO you get to still do any engineering. I prohibited myself coding. <laughs> I'd love to code, but I was coding for first two year like two years of the company and first year I was coding a lot. 
But now I just, we have such a strong team that I find out that uh, me spending time actually coding is decremental to the company's success. Uh, I still participate very closely in a lot of design and architectural discussions. I probably follow almost all high-level architectural decisions. I need less and less of that because uh, we still we have very strong technical leaders in the company. And for a lot of those, I need to just understand high-level what's going on. I don't need to go into the details anymore, which is I think is very exciting. And I spend more and more time looking at other parts of the company, like go-to-market and so on. But yeah, I, I think we always will be a technology company. I always want to be involved in the technical decisions. All right, everybody. Appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for listening. It's that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a Lifebelt badge who came on Stack Overflow, saved a question from the dustbin of obscurity, and shared some knowledge with the community. How to wrap text without regard to space and hyphen. Thank you to Thanos. Doing some good this time, Thanos. It was a, it was a snap, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just snap your fingers. Hi, I'm Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions and suggestions at podcast at Stack Overflow. We'll shout you out. And uh, yeah, if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post and want to write it, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. I'm Cassidy Williams. I do developer experience at Remote and at OSS Capital. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. I'm Maxim Fatif. I'm co-founder and CEO of Temporal. You can uh, find more about our company on our website, temporal.io. You can uh, also find me on Twitter and mfatif. And uh, please join our conference at end of uh, August 25th, 26th in Seattle. Hi, I'm Dominic. I'm a principal engineer at Temporal. You can find me at temporal.io slash Slack. You can reach out to me directly. You can find me on Twitter as well at Dominic Torno. And I will be at the Temporal Conference August 25th, 26th in Seattle in real life, the Temporal Conference <laughs> replay. In real life. IRL. Very good. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye.